Welcome back. It's episode 41 of Campbell Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell. And today's conversation, we are talking about the role that science can play in our approach to fitness and to what extent we should use it. To do that, we are joined by Harry Ranson, an online coach and the co-founder of A Taste of Fitness. You may remember his business partner and girlfriend, Lottie Tullock, appearing on an earlier episode, and I'm sure you enjoyed listening to that one. Today, Harry and I dive into his approach when it comes to implementing science within his coaching protocols and some of the ways that we can take that forward as both trainees, but also if you are a coach yourself. Harry explains the benefits to using studies and high-level information to support how clients action their fitness, as well as some of the ways that the data can be limited and we should maybe not be as reliant on the science. In order to really give this episode some value, we look at one of Harry's most famous bits of content that he does, and that is his whiteboard chats, and we answer five frequently asked questions in the fitness world. Those are how to know if a supplement is worth taking, how can we reduce hunger, how to actually reduce DOMS, delayed onset of muscle soreness, how to stay lean year-round, and the infamous well-known question of HIT versus less cardio, which is better? Hopefully, you get a lot of value from those five questions, as well as understanding the methodology that can improve both your own fitness, or if you are a coach or a personal trainer, how you can implement science in the approach that you take for your clients. Lots within this one to enjoy. If you haven't already and you're listening on Apple, please drop us a five-star rating and a written review. It would be massively appreciated and continue sharing it with friends, family, your granny, whoever you think will benefit from this episode. Without any further rambling from me, let's dive into this episode with Mr. Harry Ranson. Yes, folks, welcome back to another episode of Canberra Conversations. And today's conversation, we are talking about the use of science within our approach to fitness. It's very often that we can go to extremes, we can go book smart and deal with absolutely the minutiae of every detail, or we can just go to very basic bro science and making terrible decisions with our approach to training. To discuss this topic, I'm joined by Harry Ranson, online coach and co-founder of A Taste of Fitness. Harry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Delighted to have you, Harry, and you've got a, a big act to follow in terms of your business partner, Lottie, was a, a, a favorite guest for a lot of people in the podcast, so I'm Ooh. sure you'll step up to the plate, Harry. Yeah, so the best to last, mate. This is it. <laughs> in terms of a bit of a background then for the listeners, I mentioned you're an online coach and you, you founded A Taste of Fitness with, with your partner, Lottie. Give us a little bit of a background in your um, experience in the fitness industry. Um, so I've been in the fitness industry. I'm a bit of a dinosaur, really, um, for about well, I suppose in 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 kind of new world terms, um, about twelve years now. So I was about eighteen when I started, and I did one to one first for about seven years. Opened my own uh, private personal tra- training gym with a couple of pals of mine, and run that for three years um, that's still going um, but I decided to step away from that in 2016 and then that's when I started up uh, a taste of fitness with Lottie um, and been going ever since so been full-time online for the last four years but I've sort of been in the industry for a good 11 or 12 years now. Yeah Harry and for those that don't know you and haven't seen your content on Instagram before one of your famous content segments is whiteboard chats and that for me is probably where 
you stand out from a lot of coaches in the industry where you're creating content that is heavily evidence-based. However, it's distilled down into layman's terms. Has that been something that's always been an aim for you or were you somebody that had to realize this over time? Yeah, so I was coached myself actually in 2014 uh, for a couple of natural bodybuilding competitions and the guy that was coaching me um eric helms uh, his name was some of your listeners might know who that is um and it was his communication style that really influenced my communication style because before i was very confused about what to do and you know you, you hear these things from the gym just from your 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 sort of general everyday gym goers and it was just the way he communicated with me really influenced the way that I now communicate with my clients because it just, everything just clicked and made sense. And I thought, you know what, I, I just want to pass that on because it was such an inspiration to me and such a revelation to kind of have that light bulb moment every time I spoke to him that I was like, do you know what, I need to do this. And, and we also need to understand that people learn very differently. So a lot of the, you know, the science and the evidence-based stuff, it's, it's quite dense. Um, so you obviously mentioned about the whiteboards. So I thought, you know what, let's draw some pictures, <laughs> basically. You know, let's get, it on a, let's get it on a whiteboard, let's make it more visual, and let's just go through in a very sort of methodical way in order to try and explain some of these denser subjects. And obviously you do lose some of the detail there, but, we, we just need to understand like what we need to do and what we need to know and not necessarily some of those finer details. The actionable applications from high level studies versus presenting the minutia to Sarah and Dar Darren at the gym, who are your clients that just want to look a bit better for their holiday next year. And you're mm. pouring all this information onto them, but instead you're kind of pulling a little bit back from that, giving them the information that they need from the the actual evidence and the the kind of more heavy like you said heavy duty studies that would probably confuse a lot of people that may misinterpret them the wrong way they may be just completely isolated by some of the terms that are used within these studies as well and fitness i think is a relatively simple concept particularly when it comes to body composition however we can dress up in so many different ways that make it so much more complicated. And we're going to dive into a lot of different frequently asked questions tonight that some people have got answers for, which are completely unfounded, but then other people have gone the complete opposite direction and, and buried themselves in, in just far too much jargon and difficult language to make it a really hard subject to understand. Whereas one of the things that I love about your content and I must've been following you now for about four years since my brother and I started the page together and yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed the way that you distill things down and deliver it in a way that's, that's actionable rather than, like you say, trying to hide behind big fancy words. Mm, yeah, I mean, there's a term uh, in science, I think it's parsimony, where it's basically, you know, how can you take something and almost make it in its simplest form, essentially? Um, so that's what you're trying to do, try and put something into its simplest form without removing some like really key steps, I guess. Um, so that, that's a lot about what I try to do and, and a lot of the reason why I, I like the, the, the science and the, the evidence based stuff is because actually I think it opens up more doors than it closes. Um, when we look at fitness, it's 
is it low carb or is it low fat or is it is it this is it that is it this is it that and then you kind of realize that with science it's actually opened up quite a bit more like it doesn't have to be necessarily an either or thing it's a case of looking at okay these are the two options we we have what what's your current sort of training status what's your current goal and how can we fit you into that rather than it just being very much you have to intermittent fast or you have to do um hit training or something like that it's like okay well do you get hungry in the morning no then you know it's intermittent fasting might be a good thing for you and i think that's i think people think science is very confusing and we're, we're always looking for what's optimal but from my perspective the way that i've seen it is actually it's opened up so many more doors and avenues and and it's taken a lot of the the stuff that you hear in the gym and and actually dispelled it to be honest yeah, a lot of the myths that come about through, and I think the term we'll use is bro science, where you kind of, it's the biggest guy in the gym or the most ripped guy in the gym that maybe naturally is just in fantastic shape, but does things that are completely contrarian to, to science and logic, but it's passing on advice. So for example, you've got to drink your protein shake within five minutes after your workout with a high glycemic carb like a banana or a rice crispy square bar. Otherwise the gym session was a waste of time. That grows arms and legs over the years. And I know back in the day when i started training there was i would i would quite often rush to the changing room to my walker get my shake out i had a friend that i trained with who would rush to the changing room and open a tin of tuna which was nice. rank in terms of the smell harry but he believed that that was the way to get gains don't get me wrong he was in good, he got in good shape but it was it wasn't necessarily because of that however maybe younger people or people in our peer group seeing that were thinking that's the solution so i guess that's where some of the bro science myths come from and some of the limitations of that are that they're actually not applicable when it, when it comes down to it. Many of the people listening will be people who work in careers that want to fulfill their best fitness potential outside of their business career. But we have a lot of coaches and personal trainers listening to podcasts as well, Harry. What, what kind of sources do you use to build up this knowledge over the years and distill it down for clients? A lot of it depends on kind of how much time you have. Um, so there, there are a good few resources. So there's Mass, which is the monthly application of strength sport. Um, and that goes through, you know, about 10 studies a month or something like that related to, you know, strength and hypertrophy and all of those sorts of things. So that's, that's a really good resource. Um, examine.com uh, is a great resource for supplementation. So whenever anyone asks me about supplement, um, I typically send them there. Um, we can go through some, a few bits later if you want about how you can actually sort of level that up a little bit. I've got a few sort of tips and tricks to, um, help people out with, with choosing supplements and things like that. Um, Weightology, a guy called James Krieger, um, runs Weightology as well. Chris Beardsley runs a strength and conditioning one. So there's various sort of research reviews out there. Um, but also, uh, PubMed is a good one. So PubMed, um, or Google Scholar, um, are, it's almost like a, a Google, but for, for science, essentially, um, not all of the science is available for free. Um, but some of them you get kind of free, uh, publications. And you can just kind of, you know, go and, ha and have a look around. I mean, you, you do end up in a little bit of a rabbit hole. It's, it's sort of the equivalent of YouTube related, you know, when you're watching like cat videos at one in the morning. It's sort of like that where you've got about three million tabs open on your and you just don't know where you're you, you're looking at. Yeah, just random things on, on PubMed. But uh, yeah, I, I often find myself down a bit of a PubMed rabbit hole, to be honest. 
Yeah, that's some good sources that are available for people. Like you say, there's some of those that are free, some of those that are, are, are paid to play, but equally depending on what you're looking to get from that. So if you are somebody like me that's quite inquisitive but doesn't necessarily need to know the science, I might read the odd, the odd one here and there, maybe to help me create an Instagram post. But yeah. for somebody that's a coach like yourself that really wants to get into the minutia of it and then find out maybe something that can take your clients forward or deal with a particular challenge that a group of your clients are having, then there's a wee bit more skin in the game to invest that time within it. I yeah, think- I mean, I think it's important for, for e- even though my clients and, and you know followers and stuff aren't necessarily interested in reading, I think it's important for, know, for them to know that I am reading it rather than just spouting you know, nonsense, essentially. So I've kind of got to do my due diligence to make sure that I'm putting out the best information that I can. And, you know, things change. Science isn't perfect. Um, and sometimes my interpretation of the science might not always be correct, but typically I take the stance of do no harm. So I'm not, I'm not going to suggest that people do things that are going to harm them, obviously. But, I, you know, you, you've kind of got to make up your own interpretations as well with the science. Spot on, Harry. And what are some of the limitations, before we dive into some frequently asked questions, we've spoken a lot there about benefits. What are some of the limitations when it comes to these studies and some of the pitfalls that you maybe see people in your industry fall into? Yeah, so there are a few sort of very surface level limitations, which most people will be able to kind of pick out straight away. There's obviously like sort of statistical analysis and stuff, which to be fair, even I don't understand those where there can be some some issues there. But surface level ones would be, is it in the population that you are actually interested in? Uh, because that's quite a common one where uh, CLA was quite popular. I think, it, I think it still is, to be honest, with some people. Um, but to be honest, it hasn't really been shown to be effective apart from being in obese females. So that's almost two populations there. So it's being obese and being a female. If you are a lean resistance trained male, there's no research to suggest that it's effective. Um, so the, something like that is, is a bit of a limitation. And that's just something that people can pick out straight away. I see a lot of people and it really, really bugs me. It's one of those things that bugs me. Probably no one else realizes it is when people share like rodent studies um, on, on mice and rats and things like that. Um, because nine times out of 10, it's not going to transfer. It's still interesting. Don't get me wrong. And we still need to do that, you know, testing in order to create a hypothesis and kind of move it on to human trials. But like, it's just, don't talk about it. Like it's fact when you've just got like, you know, th- this mouse or whatever, this rat study, um, <laughs> It's just not, it's just not applicable. So I think something like that is just really easy for people to spot, even in just looking at the abstract, like just the description of the study itself, you can just be like, okay, well, is this relevant? And it's, it's not a fault of science necessary because it's difficult to recruit people for science. Um, so a lot of the time it will be sort of college aged, you know, or university aged students that have never been to the gym before, but, but, you know, they've got the time, you know, they, they maybe they've got to do it to get some sort of credit or something like that. Yeah. Um, so you, you've got to you've got to understand that there are always going to be limitations to science. But again, again, with science, we let that dictate sort of the bigger picture stuff. But we all we still need to consider the individual. Do you know what I mean? Like you wouldn't look at a scientific study and be like, right, everyone should do this. Yep. Most people should probably do this, but there's always going to be outliers and things like that. 
it needs to be, I think one of the key things you said there is applicable and that's the, that's the same as any information that we distill down. It needs to be applicable to the population that we're directing at. And like you say, mouse and rat studies or studies with a population group that's completely unrelated to your target demographic or to you as an individual, if you're somebody listening to this, looking to, to implement a more scientific approach, you need to make sure that what you've just read is applicable to you and actually would have an impact on you that the study says it will because the study may be commenting on a completely separate demographic. So we've talked a little bit about interpreting studies and one of your key roles, Harry, is interpreting studies so people don't have to. One of the key questions that you've been asked in recent times, and I'm sure uh, any content creator will recognize this in their DMs, but how do you know if a supplement's worth taking? So like I said, I think um, examine.com is, is a really, really good resource. And I think they're quite unique in the sense that they don't make their money from supplement sales. And I think that that's super important because again, that's a limitation of, of, of science and research as well. It's sometimes like, where is that funding source? You know, who are they backed by? Why are they saying it? And that's not to say, you know, that people that, um, share supplements and sell supplements they're all crooks or anything like that uh, but it's important that we we understand that the the information is unbiased um, so examine.com uh, is, is a really great resource but one thing that i tell a lot of people to do is make sure that you know if it's a, a multi-ingredient supplement as most supplements are these days you know like pre-workouts and sleep supplements and stuff like that um uh, a client of mine the other day sent me um it was a, a stress and anxiety supplement so you can read all the spiel that says oh it makes you you know this that and the other but it's like right let's look at the label now and let's kind of cross-reference that with examine.com so rather than just kind of looking at all the spiel and stuff look at the ingredients and think okay well is this ingredient effective so it can be quite laborious but it improves your knowledge but it also means it's going to save you money potentially yeah. and, and, and know whether that is worth, worth taking. So again, my client sent me this, uh, this supplement. So I went onto the website, I checked all the ingredients against examine.com and it actually checked out. So you're looking at a, what is that ingredient effective in what you want it to be effective in and B, is it in the effective dose? Because there's a lot of supplements that, you know, it will have uh, pre-workouts are synonymous for this really it will have beta alanine, it will have citrulline malate, it will have caffeine, which is great because they're all effective um, depending on what you're doing, but they're like drastically underdosed. Yep. So you, you actually, what I recommend to people then is actually, you know, double scoop it or even three scoops and turn into that baby meme or whatever it is. <laughs> um, but you know, you could be just spending loads of money on a, subpar supplement that you've got a double dose so you know you might normally get 30 servings but you're only actually getting 15 so you're, you're spending all this money and and also um a, probably a minor one people won't necessarily come up with this but also looking at the uh the, the type of supplement so magnesium is a classic one there's like six or seven different magnesiums and you know magnesium oxide i think it's oxide and sulfate aren't absorbed as well as some of the others like citrate and things like that. So it's important that again, you know, are the supplement manufacturers putting in poorer quality supplement, you know, and it, it can be, like I said, it can be a bit of a minefield. Um, but that would be my first port of call is to sort of check the supplements against examine, 
are they effective doses are they even effective in what you want them to be effective in and then that's going to give you a little bit more of an idea of, of whether to um buy that supplement or not that's a really helpful guide harry and i think to come in on the dosage point that's a huge one so i thankfully well well pre-covid not to use the c word too much in this podcast but in terms of dosage for vitamin d3 the vast majority of supplements are way below what we actually need i think it's between 5,000 to 10,000 IU that we actually need as an effective dose, particularly in the UK and particularly mm-hmm. for any of our fellow listeners north of the border where we have very limited sun, Harry. It's, it, it, whereas the vast majority of like your boots, your, even your my protein, your, your bulk powders, there's like 1,000 IU. So you would need to take mm-hmm. five of those per day to hit your minimum. And ideally for a, a weight-trained male of 75, 80, 85 kilos, you need 10,000 IU. So mm-hmm. I've had to shop around for ones that are actually of the right dosage because previously I was maybe taking it, but I was getting a minimum dose that probably wasn't even the minimum effective dose. So that's a, that's a leading example for me and I think a big point because like you say, think of the pre-workouts, maybe they've got 300 mega caffeine, which is plenty, but it'll, have, it'll be underdosed in the citrulline mallet and the beta-alanine. So effectively, yeah. you're, just, you're just buying a very, very expensive white monster that you've drank two of like it's yeah yeah i mean it's the same for um actually like you said it's the same for fish oil as well yeah um so you'll often you'll often spend more to get one that has a higher epa and dha but like your typical from like you said your boots or your supermarket wherever it'll have about 300 milligrams of combined but you know you can get them from you know and then my protein bulk whatever i won't say it just in case you're affiliated (laughs) <laughs> but um yeah you just various different companies where you'll get sort of 750 milligrams so you only need to take you know two or three of them whereas the other ones you need to take like seven of them to get an effective dose and it, although it seems more expensive um it it actually works out cheaper in the long run yeah cheaper but also you're paying for what you get it's the same as when somebody's like oh i've got an online coach but they cost me 30 pounds a month but their service is absolutely atrocious whereas the only coach costs 120 pounds a month you're like oh i spend a lot more a month but your return is actually tangible whereas before you're not covering your bases and it's funny you touch on affiliation so yeah i i do work with my protein but i don't get the vast majority of my i don't get my omegas i don't get my vitamin d from them because they're underdosed i actually had to go to a new nutrition who i found through amazon and i again i do work with them now but equally i had to go and look for mm. the right partner and the right brand to actually get an effective dose because like you say the omega-3 and 6 and then the vitamin d3 was way underdosed for your kind of over-the-counter or your standard supplement shop so you actually have to go and seek out an effective yeah. dose or effectively you are just paying for quite an expensive little capsule that you have every morning although it's cheaper than the the one that actually works yeah but it's, it is more expensive in the sense that you're literally getting no benefit from it are you so yeah. yeah, exactly that. So that's just covered a fairly common question in terms of how to figure out if supplements worth taking. The listeners can start with examine.com. They can look at the doses. They can look at whether there's any evidence if that's actually a useful um, supplement for the effect they're looking to get. Because like you say, if they're looking at a pre-workout to improve performance and there's a lot of ingredients on the back of this label that isn't related to something tangible from performance, they're effectively just paying for a a cocktail that's quite expensive and doesn't really justify the Yeah, just paying for fillers, really. I think there's a lot of fillers in these supplements as well. I find that with greens powders as well. I don't know if you've got an opinion on those, but sometimes you look at the stuff that's in the back of greens powders and you're wondering whether you're actually getting any fruit or veg or whether it's just 
polythenol well, sugars? It's actually kind of like what you said earlier, where you've got some people that talk about science and they're just using all these big words and they're sort of hiding behind it. I think it's almost that that thought process that the more is better. And if it's got blueberry extract and you know blackberry extract and raspberry extract, like just throw all the berries <laughs> in there, like and just hope for the best, you know. So I, th I think that's a, it's a similar sort of thing, really. It's like people think more is better, but it's like actually what is effective. Yeah, exactly that. To move on from supplements then, one of the key things that I've seen you speak about in recent years, Harry, is around hunger. And anyone that has ever dieted before or anyone that is remotely fitness focused and is eating clean and all that kind of good stuff, they will have experienced an element of hunger. However, one, there are so many different ways that we can actually reduce hunger that are science-based rather than placebo or false. What are some of those ways that you would talk about, Harry? So the first thing um, I mention whenever someone is concerned about hunger, you're probably thinking I'm going to say food volume or something like that, but it's actually, it's quite difficult to avoid hunger completely. And it's more about managing when you get hungry to so that it doesn't catch you by surprise because that's when most people slip up is that, you know, normally it's, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. They haven't got anything on them. They're super hungry. They go into the petrol station or the, or the supermarket and they just end up just buying whatever. So if you can employ a little bit of structure so that you can manage that hunger. So it might be a case of, you know, you get hungry maybe an hour before each meal time. That's fine. And, and, but at least, you know, it's coming. Okay, so you know, you maybe you have your lunch at 1 p.m., 12 p.m., stomach starts rumbling a little bit, but it's like, do you know what? It's kind of like I don't know if you've ever done any sort of outdoor running, but you kind of like it's like you run to the next lamppost and and you know, the next road and stuff like that. Yep. It's kind of like that. You can see that light at the end of the tunnel. Whereas if you just get randomly hungry and you've got nothing on you, it, that's when you know, shit hits the fan basically. Um, so that would be my first thing is, is and that's where you know something like um it's intermittent fasting um might work for some people it doesn't work for everyone um but it's something that i occasionally do again i don't do it necessarily like i do it usually during a fat loss phase um and it's more a case of not for the benefits of you know whatever people say these days autophagy and all that sort of jazz it's more a case of like well if i do that at least i know i'm going to be hungry then and then i'm going to be fine then so it's, it's not about avoiding hunger completely. It's more about managing and knowing when it's going to come so that you can go about the rest of your day and you're not going to worry about it. It's not going to trip you up. Yeah, just to come in on that hunger point, Harry, in terms of like knowing that you're hungry maybe an hour before a meal and structure, I'm a big advocate of eating at similar times if you can because our bodies are habit driven and the listeners are probably rolling their eyes because i always talk about james clear's atomic habits and structure and routine but i absolutely know that i normally have lunch about 12 15 uh, when i'm working at home or when i'm working in the office outside of the current period and i 100 know at 11 45 12 o'clock my stomach will start to go whereas if i've been on a weekend if i'm out of routine and i've smashed like a a big meal at like 11 o'clock my stomach is still thinking 12 o'clock, Colin, you're going to eat now. And I'm like, no, no, you're full. So hunger and structure is actually really linked. And I'm glad that you raised that as one of the, the first points from a kind of evidence-based perspective. Like we are inevitably going to be hungry at some points. And just to address that hunger isn't necessarily always a bad thing. I'm eating a lot of food at the moment. I'm in a, a fairly 
maybe a, a maintenance kind of gaining phase. I'm eating a lot of food, maybe north of 3,500, um, 4,000 calories. And I still get hungry at points during the day because hunger is relative and it just, your, your appetite adjusts and your body adjusts to when it expects to be fed. And I know that you've pushed your food up over the years, Harry, and you've dieted on higher foods than a lot of people would have done similar to myself. And you know that you will still experience hunger at that, whereas somebody else eating that amount of food would be completely satiated and saturated. And it's, it, it's all relative in that respect. So first things first, we've talked about structure. We've talked about the different awareness of when we're hungry. So it might be like you say, intermittent fasting is a great tool for somebody who wakes up, goes to work and doesn't even notice that they're hungry until 11 o'clock. And then if they wait till 12, they're going to be fine. Or somebody in contrast to that might be wake up in the morning absolutely ravenous and have to have to smash some food in. What are some of the other ways that are kind of beyond structure that they can manage the hunger? So yeah, the, the next one would probably be looking at managing your food volume. Um, there's a there's a really interesting resource. I, I always um, pick it out. Weirdly, when you go on the website, it says it's like not ready to be launched or something like that. Um, it's called caloriegallery.com. Okay. But it's been in it's been in that phase for like probably eight years now. It's literally ancient. Um, but it, it's really interesting. It's a visual representation of what 200 calories looks like of like various different foods. So it's just really interesting. And I think it's a bit of an eye opener for most people. And again, going back to sort of the whiteboard chats, I think like visually it kind of helps people understand. It's like, wow, that's what 200 calories of lettuces and that's what 200 calories of like peanut butter is. And it's literally like just a, a massive difference. So ultimately, you know, you can fill your calories with 400 grams of food or four kilograms, you know, 4,000 grams of food, yep. depending on how you go about it. Now, I do think you can sort of go too far with it. Obviously, um, you know, you can end up, you know, people talk about being like super bloated and things like that. So you obviously got to be careful of that. But, you know, nine times out of 10, when, when I have someone come to me who says, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, really hungry and I, you know, I have a look at their food volume and, and it's not necessarily that their, their food choices are, are bad at all, but they could just maybe shift things around a bit. So for example, let's say someone's plate is, half of it is rice and half of it is vegetables you might turn three quarters of it into vegetables and quarter of it into rice or something like it's not that rice is a bad thing it's just it might not fill you up necessarily as much or give you as much um food volume as, as, yeah and, and it's typically going to be the kind of the starchier carbohydrates fats um are going to be one of those and, and obviously those things are still important they can still definitely be incorporated but, you know, when you've got someone having, you know, half a bar of dairy milk and the big one we're talking about at the end of the day and they're talking about being hungry and it's just sort of like, well, can we be a little bit smarter with, you know, how we're, we're kind of distributing our, our food volume, basically. Yeah, and, and prioritising that food volume when you're hungry throughout the day. So I know a lot of people who work in offices and work office roles will prioritise something voluminous for their lunch because that's when they typically are sat down at a desk and just shoveling away, shoveling away, shoveling away. So you need to feel like you've eaten something. So mm -hmm. salads at that point and lots of vegetables at that point to bulk out the meal can play a, a really good role. Whereas if you smash in uh, a sandwich or a baguette, you're not getting the same amount of chews and, dige and kind of digestive cues as you would get from eating a little bit more in something with a little bit more bite and chew to it and i'm not going to get into that bracket of people counting their chews and stuff like that harry i think we would be down a rabbit hole at that stage but i certainly <laughs> think that i certainly think that people eating more 
high volume, low, lower calorie foods to bulk out their meals at times when they feel more hungry will certainly mm-hmm. help with regards to, to that. And you touched on a little bit there about quality of nutrition within that. What role does that play when it comes to satiation of your hunger? So there's a lot of research that looks at kind of ultra, it's more a case of like when you have ultra processed foods, um, there was a, a recent paper looking at ultra processed foods and it's sort of rolling obesity. And it's sort of, it's quite obvious when you think about it, but it just shows when people are eating ad libitum, which is basically have as much as they want, you know, they, they tend to eat more calories when they're eating sort of ultra processed food. So when you eat something that. And and typically they go hand in hand when you have something that's a little bit less processed, like it tends to be fruit and vegetables and things like that. And I think it it just gets to a point where like you can only eat so much for and and you're not going to eat 2000 calories of salad, are you? Because you're going to be full and and satisfied before you get to 2000 calories. Whereas, you know, if you had, um, you know, a burger and chips or something that can easily be done and you might not even be super satisfied after that you probably feel a bit minging to be honest but um, you know I think that if if you're having kind of more nutritious foods they just tend to be lower in calories and higher in volume really Um, and and, you know obviously the more kind of nutrients vitamins minerals you also got fiber as well uh, which can slow down gastric emptying which can make you feel a bit fuller Um, and you know just in terms of general energy and things like that as well so you might find that you know people they think they're hungry, but it's just because they've got low energy, because they're eating poor quality of foods, because they're nutrient deficient. So it kind of all plays hand in hand. Obviously, there's a balance to be had there. We can't just eat 100% whole foods all the time, but it should really make up the core of your nutrition, really. Yeah, great, great points, Harry. And I think when it comes to that quality of nutrition, like you say, the choices tend to lend themselves to being more voluminous for the calories and therefore more filling in terms of the amount of eating you're doing, they tend to be higher fiber. And like you say, that slows down the digestion process and fills up the gut a little bit more. What about for those that talk about protein is the most satiating macronutrient? Is there, is there any evidence behind that? So there's actually quite a lot coming out at the moment. A lot of people sort of saying that it's not. Um, so typically protein in and, in and of itself isn't necessarily more satiating but diets higher in protein are more satiating so that it, it it's you know you're not you can't just eat sort of unlimited chicken breast but when we're comparing diets if you had a diet that was you know 50 grams of protein uh you know 100 grams of carbs and 50 grams of fat that would be horrendous but um, but then if we can like switch that around and we had 100 grams of protein and 50 grams of carbs and 50 grams of fat um the the higher protein would would be better um so i think in general it's probably not a bad thing to increase that protein a little bit and have your diet maybe you know i don't tend to prescribe macros and stuff in percentages and stuff but if you 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 probably do want to kind of push that percentage of protein up a little bit higher if you want to feel a little bit more satisfied yeah that makes total sense and i know when i've done dieting phases where i'm digging a little bit more i prioritize protein remaining high for body composition reasons and muscle retention but also for satiation because i know if i have 200 grams of chicken breast with 150 grams of rice i feel more full than if i have 150 grams of chicken breast with 200 grams of rice and whether that's right or wrong i certainly feel that the, the chicken takes longer to eat for starters but it also 
satiates you more and it kind of hit when it hits your stomach you feel that a little bit fuller and i suppose it's even if it is placebo i certainly have noticed it over the years and i suppose like you say where there's a higher protein content within your diet you do tend to feel fuller overall within your meals mm-hmm. there's another one as well like a bit of a, a bonus one is um which has been talked about a little bit more recently and it's actually the viscosity of your foods so for example if you were to have um like yogurt's a classic example like a greek yogurt that tends to be a little bit thicker is going to keep potentially keep you fuller than like a natural yogurt which is going to be thinner Okay. So that's another interesting one as well is, is kind of the viscosity of your foods. And, and, you know, it might even be worth if you're making a protein shake to actually use it with less liquid um, in order to, you know, it, it's, it helps with that sort of like your mouth feel as well. Um, so it doesn't feel like you're just drinking a normal drink. You're actually make, trying to make foods a little bit thicker um, in order to kind of get a little bit. It's, it's kind of like, you know, with like casein protein tends to be a little bit thicker um, and it, it kind of, Apparently that tends to help with, with kind of hunger a little bit as well. So there we go. That's it. That's, that's, that's new information for me there, Harry. So it's a Harry Ranson exclusive on the podcast when it comes to (laughs) thickness of your food, (laughs) how thick your food is thick with two C's at the end. So three C's. (laughs) (laughs) You meant, you mentioned the, the word liquid there. Liquid calories is the bane of so many people's fat loss attempts. And I always laugh when people in the office are, are wondering how I can eat three bagels and a, and a couple of bananas and stay in my shape they are when they will happily have two or three teas a day with four to five sugars in it. And I'm thinking, well, probably swap that for this. You could even swap it for a donut if you wanted. And you'd, be, you'd, you'd, you'd have yeah. more fullness. What is the, what does the evidence say about liquid calories? I certainly know from something I've seen before that pretty much it hits a certain level of calories. Is that right? And from there on, it doesn't provide any more satiety regardless of how many calories that liquid has? Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of liquid calories, I'm not sure if I've, I'm not sure if I'm, I've read that paper. Maybe, maybe I have, maybe I haven't. But um, yeah, just in, in terms of liquid calories, it, it comes down to that kind of viscosity thing that I just mentioned as well. You're just not going to get the, the, the same sort of satisfaction as, as food because you don't have as you mentioned earlier you don't have that chewing um you don't have that kind of that mouth feel and that sensation and it's funny because you speak to people who who want to lose fat and they're drinking loads of liquid calories and they're wondering why they're not losing weight and then you speak to someone who wants to put on weight and they're eating all of their calories and they're not drinking any of liquid calories and you're like right if we could just kind of swap roles here yeah. you would both be better off because a lot of the, you get a lot of hard gainers that are just like, Oh, I can't eat all this food. It's like, well, drink your calories then do the opposite to what these other people are doing because it is just so easy to, to drink calories. You know, you yeah. just got to look at the calories in alcohol, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. how easy it, not, I'm suggesting that for hard gainers, obviously, but um, it's, it's just very easy to drink and you, you're just not going to get the same satisfaction in any way compared to, to food. So of course. And one of the other areas that I know plays a leading role around hunger, and I'll be interested to hear what some of the research says, and we have had a, a professor from Stanford talk a little bit around this within a, a kind of wider conversation, but what role does sleep play when it comes to hunger and management of it? Yeah, so um, there's, there is an interesting paper that looks at 
it, it was basically, I can't remember that, what's the title of it? It's, it's something about, you know, how sleep affects your ability to lose fat, basically. Um, and, you know, a lot of it has to do with leptin and ghrelin. So we've got these two hormones that kind of um, help trigger sort of hunger and, and satiety and fullness and stuff like that. So we tend to see those sort of hormones get a little bit out of whack. So your, your leptin drops and your, your, your ghrelin increases. So you basically just get, you know, really hungry. Um, and another thing that a lot of people don't consider as well is that if you're not getting enough sleep, you are awake for longer, which means you've got to spread your food out even more. Yeah. So, you know, in an ideal world, we'd go like full sloth mode, sleep for, you know, I don't know, 20 hours a day and then just eat for four hours and that'd be great. Fantastic. But if we're getting sort of five or six hours a night, then that means that we've then got to spread our food out over, you know, 18, 19 hours, yeah. rather than if we were getting eight or nine hours a night, we, we kind of condense that eating window. And as we know from, from various sort of, um, you know, fasting research, we know that like reducing that eating window can really help with things like hunger. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously getting less sleep as well, means that we typically see so there was a study that looked at eight and a half hours of sleep versus five and a half hours of sleep yep. um the group that got eight and a half hours they lost more fat and less muscle um five and a half hours they i think they might have even lost more muscle than they did fat obviously yeah. there's there's issues with um you know body composition testing so it could have just been like a bit of an error there but it was quite clear the comparison between the two that you you lose more muscle and you lose less fat yeah and equally your training was probably worse because you were more fatigued you're the deci- you had decision fatigue like you say your hormones were all over the place but also you've got that longer eating window so yeah certainly we, we bang the drum for sleep on this podcast so that just adds adds to that as well last thing to discuss with regards to hunger harry what about people that maybe take breaks from dieting and building those Lottie spoke about it on on her episode where many of your clients will have a maintenance phase after a fat loss phase to try and reset where their head's at from a, a kind of diet fatigue mentality. But what about from an actual hunger perspective? Well, I think it's just a case of like cumulatively over time, you just get more and more hungry. And, you know, we, we see those hormones, they don't just necessarily drop overnight. They're, they're going to sort of drop slowly and increase slowly depending on, on what hormones we're looking at here. So I think it just gets to a point where hunger become, you just become insatiable. You cannot overcome it. You know, you can in- introduce like higher days of food, like refeed days or something like that. And that can kind of, kind of keep you ticking over, but it sort of gets to a point where that just sort of doesn't touch the sides. And ultimately a lot of the time it comes to just being able to, extend the diet for longer i think that you know people get to a point where they get so hungry they get lots of cravings and you don't want to force a square peg into a round hole um you want to make sure that they are and and also you know not not, not that we've got the time to get into it now but you you don't want to set up any sort of disordered eating patterns as well yep. because if you start forcing people and suggesting that people continue 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 when their body's kind of telling them not to then you're potentially going to set up something that is going to harm people for the long term. So having a, a, a diet break is kind of a, a two steps forward, one step back scenario, whereby, yeah, it, it might feel like you're going backwards a little bit because you're just maintaining, but it means that you can continue on 
rather than just playing this sort of like snakes and ladders game where you just, you know, you diet down and then you end up, you know, overeating and you gain it all back again. So a diet break is just a good opportunity to kind of, it, it, very similar to a deload in training, you just let your body just recover a little bit. You let some of those hormones recover a little bit. Um, you reduce some of those that hunger. You you get rid of some of those cravings because you you can increase the, the the food intake for you know a week or two weeks, maybe even longer than that. And it just means people can last a little bit longer. I I, I always compare it to like a pit stop in Formula One. Okay. You know, you, obviously they need a pit stop to refuel in Formula One, and I bet that pisses off the drivers no end because they can see people racing past them but ultimately if they didn't take that didn't change the tires if they didn't get that fuel they wouldn't be able to complete the course yeah so they need to you, sometimes you need to incorporate a diet break or a refeed or something just so people can actually get to where they want to be because in a lot of cases people have a lot more fat to lose than they think they do yep and sometimes if you're losing beyond say eight to ten percent of your body weight in one hit that's going to just be incredibly challenging. So it might be a case to be like, right, let's lose eight to 10% body weight. Let's take a couple of weeks off. Let's try and tie that in. Maybe if you're going away on holiday or something like that, let's try and tie it in with, with that. And then, then we can do another eight weeks eight or 10 weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it may be. But when you actually look at the bigger picture, that person's then dieted down for 16 weeks rather than grinding it out for 10 or 12 and yeah. feeling miserable at the end of it. Yeah, so, significant point there, Harry. And I think, like you say, there's a lot to that with regards to the mental aspect, but also, like you say, it's that period where their hormones with regards to their hunger levels and driving them to potentially overeat or, or give in to more temptation when it comes to having access to hyperpalatable foods again, probably yeah. on holiday, which, which we often see, don't we? People blow up afterwards or, or after a show or a shoot, people get access to this food again and they have no way to regulate fullness because they've been dieting. So like you say, that break in the middle of two, three, four weeks, however long you want to go for, can allow us to reset that, but also from a mental standpoint as well as hormonal. So no, what's what's within that when it comes to hunger there? And a very frequently asked question. Next up, Harry, how do we actually reduce DOMS? And for those that don't know, DOMS are delayed onset of muscle soreness. So we still don't really know what DOMS are. You know, a lot of people have sort of speculation about, you know, is it muscle damage? Is it metabolite buildup? Um, but it's still, we're still quite unsure. So in terms of ways to reduce it, the, the, the main ways that we get DOMS is typically um, when we're doing novel exercises. So I played randomly, I, I played in a, in a football match. It was years ago now. I used to play football quite a bit when I was younger, up until I was about 18. Um, and then I played in it. It was like a dad's 60th football match or something like that. And I hadn't played for a while. And honestly, the doms afterwards were absolutely ridiculous. But it's just because I hadn't played football for years. Um, so doms isn't always indicative of muscle gain because I'm not going to be gaining muscle running around a football pitch. Um, but it's because it was a new stimulus to me. And, you know, playing 90 minutes. Um, well, I say playing. I was probably on, on <laughs> standing around for most of it. Um, but you know on the pitch for 90 minutes that's that's a lot in one hit so my recommendation if, if you're doing something new so maybe you're starting a new program maybe you're doing an exercise that you haven't done for quite a while um, and this goes for endurance or strength as well you know if you're going running and you've signed up to a marathon you don't want to be going out and doing you know 10k on your first run yeah. you want to kind of slowly build up that tolerance um, there's something called the repeated bout effect 
where basically your body sets up this protective mechanism in order for you to not get DOMS quite as badly. So anyone that's been through DOMS knows that it tends to get better the more you do something. Um, so your, your body will adjust to it, but typically my, my, my best advice and something I do with quite a lot of my clients, you know, normally they might do say three, four sets of an exercise, but when we're sort of introducing them to the program, we might just do one or two sets because it's slowly building up that volume, slowly building up that tolerance the chances are they're still going to have DOMS, but it's not going to be, oh, I don't want to go to the gym again, DOMS. Yep. Now, I, I tend to um, coach kind of intermediate, I would say, I wouldn't say I coach super advanced people, people that are generally intermediates, but when I was doing one-to-one, -one, I coached a lot of beginners, and it was super important back then that you didn't push them too hard because you wanted them to come back. You know, I think sometimes it's a bit of a badge of honor for people to be like, oh, you know, couldn't walk the next day. Yep. But actually, you've got to think, are you going to be able to perform the next day? You know, if you're if you can't, you know, sit down, you know, the next time you come to do a leg press, you're not going to be able to perform that movement correctly. Agreed. And you're not going to be able to push the performance and things like that. So. Yeah. So from an applicable perspective, increased exposure gradually over time will enable us to not get crippling doms. Don't get me wrong. I think a lot of us like maybe that little bit of soreness to know that we've progressed a weight and we should get that when we've pushed beyond, but it shouldn't be crippling, like you said, Harry, where it affects performance a day, two, three days later. Yeah, I think that, like you said, like doms can, it can be good to kind of feel it in, in certain muscle groups. I think especially if you're, you're trying to grow a particular muscle group, for example, and, you know, if you're doing a bench press and you feel it in your traps, you, it's probably a bit of an issue, isn't there? Yep. So it can it can at least kind of give us an idea. Um, another thing uh, with DOMS or that affects DOMS is it tends to be eccentric actions that can cause a lot of DOMS. So if you're doing excessive eccentric actions, like you know very slow eccentric loading, so the the lowering of the weight, um, you might want to kind of speed that up a bit. You know if you're doing sort of six second eccentrics and you have crippling DOMS you might want to try, you know, two or three second eccentrics, you know, just making sure that you are obviously in control of the load, but not extending it so much that you're just causing this DOMS, basically. Yeah. What are some of the tried and trusted measures that, alongside increased exposure that people might want to implement when it comes to decreasing their DOMS from an actual scientific perspective? So there's not a huge amount. Um, there's, there's been quite a lot of studies on it, but not a huge amount in terms of like being effective, really. Um, foam rolling uh, tends to reduce muscle soreness a little bit. So the, the research suggests that you're looking at two minutes per sort of muscle area um, directly after the workout and then every 24 hours for the next sort of three or four days. Yep. Um, so, you know, if you train at five, then you would do it at five o'clock the next day, five o'clock. I mean, it probably doesn't really matter too much as long as you're sort of doing it every day for two minutes on, on the affected area. Now, you know, the likelihood is, is that I, I don't know about you, but you don't get DOMS everywhere. You just tend to get it in quite specific muscles. Yep. Um, so it doesn't mean that you've got to spend, you know, three hours foam rolling. It might just be a case of, you know, foam rolling. That's been shown to help DOMS a little bit. Again, none of these are going to be like, night and day differences i think in the, the exposure and the eccentric actions are probably going to be um the best thing um also there, there's a little bit of evidence so there's a meta-analysis that came out i think it was maybe two years ago that looked at compression garments yep um so that's an interesting one as well um so obviously just helping with that 
kind of vasodilation and vasoconstriction, um, sort of helping with blood flow. Um, so that's something as well that you might look at doing. I mean, yeah, that those are the the kind of the 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 two. I mean, there's been other things like sort of water immersion and stuff like that, but the 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 evidence is is quite mixed and and mass art, you know, it's it's quite mixed really. And also, some of these need to be like actionable and feasible for your average person. So we all talk about cold water therapy and like jumping in the ocean every day or something like that. And that's all well and good. But if you're somebody that works in a corporate career and you're being asked to go and find an ocean at six o'clock every morning before you go into the office, it's maybe a little bit outside of your, outside of your, uh, your access. Whereas a foam roller and gradually building up your program and being careful about how slow you lower a load sometimes is something that's an awful lot more actionable, both from a scientific perspective, but also from a lifestyle perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now onto one of the headlines that will get you a lot of clicks on Instagram, Harry, and probably me as well over the years, how to stay lean year round. Cause you, you, you and I do it well. I don't, I don't know. Is, is, is there science behind it or are we just lucky as some people will say? Um, well, it's interesting. You mentioned earlier about me being able to diet on the high calories. I actually don't. <laughs> oh, really? I don't Have I got this wrong? Much higher calories than I do. Yeah. So, um, no, I mean, one thing, obviously that there's, there's various things that look at, um, being able to sort of maintain weight loss and, and it's actually incredibly difficult for a lot of people to do. Um, but I was actually reading a study today and it looked at, personality traits of people that are able to stay a little bit leaner um, or kind of maintain their their weight loss and their fat loss and it was an increased level of conscientiousness say that five times fast um and it was basically things like conscientiousness is things like you know the self-discipline and having order and having structure and things like that and you obviously spoke about structure earlier because a lot of what people do is that they'll go on this diet, they'll follow, you know, they'll have this structure, they'll eat the same meals every day, or not the same meals necessarily, but like they'll eat the same times, they'll do their food shopping at the beginning of the week, like everything will be prepared. And then as soon as that diet's over, they just, that just all goes to pop. And they just sort of, you know, things start to, portions start to increase slowly and structure starts to kind of break down a little bit. So that's that's one thing, but something that you probably want me to say is, is building more muscle is probably, I think, one thing that really helps with staying leaner. And the thing, the problem with that is that it does take time. I mean, how long have you been training now? Uh, Eleven years, twelve years. So yeah, time. exactly. So like, you know, you probably find it easier to stay lean now than you perhaps did maybe five or six years ago. So much easier because you've you've got a little bit more muscle. So it's not something that's going to happen overnight but if you strive to build more muscle and you're not on a perpetual diet because i think that's a problem sometimes is that people diet for three months they do nothing for three months they don't even train and then they diet again if you can be a little bit more disciplined with still putting that effort even when you're not dieting i think that over the course of time it makes it easier to it's not that you are leaner it's that you appear leaner when we're talking about being leaner, we're talking about having like, I guess I'm talking about having a low body fat percentage. But when you build more muscle, your body fat percentage doesn't need to be as low to look good. You know, you think about people that have massive muscles like bodybuilders, they, they look lean all the time yep. because they just have massive muscles. 
and that might not always be achievable to, to everyone but like the 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 bigger the muscles you have the leaner you can look at slightly higher body fat percentages and that might be a little bit of a um a compromise for most people because if you like and i see all the time i see it in my coaching practice as well where i really try and encourage people to kind of build a bit more muscle and they're just constantly you know wanting to hammer their their body fat down and it's just always banging your head against a brick wall because it's like yeah you could get there but are you going to be able to stay there? Probably not. So what's the point in keep trying to get there unless it's for a competition or a wedding or something like that, something that's just going to be a one-off, Yeah. you know, you just want to get rid of it. But if, if it's for kind of the sustainable long-term physique, then you kind of need to think, right, let's stop banging my head against a brick wall here. How can I flip this on its head and go in the other direction? That's going to allow me to eat more food. It's going to allow me to not have to battle my body fat percentage all the time, but still look good. Exactly this, Harry, and there's lots of things within that to, to unpack. And I think the overarching theme in what you said there, and one of the phrases that I've used in the podcast many times now, is discipline equals freedom. So you spoke about when somebody's got this fat loss goal and everything's on the money, they eat similar times, they buy their food shop at the week, they, they cook their stuff, they know that they train Monday, Tuesday, Thursday at 5.30 after work and it's religious, they get it done. Whereas when that goal goes away, the holiday's been, the photo shoot's been, the wedding's been, the event you want to look in shape for has been, all your structures and habits crumble and they go. So inevitably, it's going to be much harder to look remotely lean when everything around you that was putting you in a position to look even close to your best is now gone. And also within that, you're talking about muscle building phases. I think if you're as adherent to the diet and the structure for a muscle building phase as you are for a fat loss phase, you'll be astounded at how much, how many gains you can make as a natural athlete. Initially, I know nowadays you and I would be lucky to put on a kilo a year, even if we were um, very anal and tracked absolutely every variable, but in the initial stages, there's actually a lot of tissue that can go on. If you, especially when the food comes in and you're doing the same kind of structure and habits as you had when you were trying to diet down for eight, 12 weeks, if you do that for a muscle building phase, you might find that your physique looks radically different and you pack on three, four or five kilos of muscle in a, in, in a period that would never have been possible later on in your training career, but you can benefit from it now. And like you say, it buys that freedom later on to look that little bit better. And one of the questions that I'll get asked is, oh, how, how can you have abs when you are not as lean as normal? And that's because they're thicker and more developed. So they show even when there's a little bit more body fat on them. And equally, fat distribution is different depending on how much muscle you have over the years as well because it spreads out a bit more, as, as I'm sure you'll know, Harry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's funny when you see people, and I, and I understand it, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but like when people, they only train abs when they're dieting, but that's, you know, and, and you will build, you know, you can build muscle when, when you're dieting um, to some degree, I think, especially if you're a beginner, but it, it's having, like you said, it's having the discipline to train your abs when you can't see them necessarily. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like, that's when you're actually going to build them up a little bit more. And the thing is, you can have a bit more freedom during a, a muscle gain phase, but there still needs to be like a good 80, 90% of that structure. I suppose you, you get the freedom from the fact that you get to eat more calories. So that just instantly gives you a bit more food freedom and flexibility. You don't necessarily have to, you know, track every single macro and do it all in advance. But 
it's it's the people that just train really hard when they're on when they're dieting i i've i typically recommend it to some of my clients we we almost do it the other way around yeah. um so quite often you know i'll get a client training five days a week during a muscle gain phase and we'll drop it to four days a week during a fat loss phase yeah. so we actually train a little bit less because recovery is going to be impacted um energy we want to make sure every session is really good i'd rather four really good sessions than five mediocre sessions um so in, in actual fact people think oh i've got to train six seven days a week when i'm dieting down and i actually think no because you should have done the hard work already we let the diet do most of the work now and we just kind of keep things ticking over make sure you're enjoying your training and you're not absolutely knackered i don't do that with everyone sometimes you know we just keep it the same but just as an example of actually you should be doing more training when you're not dieting because that's how you build that kind of long-term physique yeah more volume more intensity you've got more calories so you've got more room and scope to to lay down some tissue so if that's not a, a kind of kick in the right direction for you to kind of structure and commit to a muscle building phase in order to buy yourself some freedom longer term then i don't know what will be harry so next up and last thing that we'll cover on this episode is the age-old hit versus less what is better harry what what's better what's better for what that would be my question back to you how annoying is it to answer a question with a question um so yeah there are a couple of things to consider um with with sort of hits versus lists or miss or, or whatever you want to call it um ultimately for fat loss it, it probably doesn't matter providing calories are matched i think that's the point i think ultimately we, we are I, I don't want to simplify it too much um but ultimately we are looking at the, the kind of calorie expenditure of it so with hit you can expend or burn to use the colloquial term um more calories in a shorter period of time so that's going to be great for people who are relatively time poor um and they just want to kind of smash out maybe 100 150 calories of cardio after their workout yep however there is a limit to how much hit you can do because it's high intensity in nature there probably is a limit to how many calories you can expend in one session Whereas with sort of miss or lists, uh, the lower intensity stuff, you could, it sounds incredibly dull, but if you find a good Netflix series, it might not be. Um, but you could do, you know, an hour on a bike or a, a treadmill or a Stairmaster, Stairmaster and you could clock up 600 calories. Yeah. You're never going to be able to clock up 600 calories doing HIIT training. And if you are, it's not HIIT training, <laughs> basically. You know, HIIT is high intensity. So. Yeah this allows you to do to to have a greater almost capacity to, to to burn calories but you do need to have the time to do it so time to do it but equally you've spoken there about recovery and many of the listeners will know that i've had a bit of a fitness menopause and i'm doing a bit more functional fitness and more ollie march and crossfit style stuff so i have 100 noticed on the days that i've done conditioning the next day i'm much less able to go in and maybe be as strong if I'm using muscles related to that. So if I do a rowing and burpee metcon, if I'm doing back the next day in pull-ups, I'm a bit tighter. I'm a bit sore. There's no two ways about it. It's just not the same. Whereas if I'd burned the same number of calories from that metcon with steps or on a treadmill or on a, on a stationary bike for an hour, I'd be good to go the next day. I mean, many of my dieting phases, I had no forceful cardio whatsoever i actually just had like 15 to 17,000 steps which the key variable you spoke about there harry was time not not anything else 
Yeah, so um, speaking of concurrent training, which is essentially trying to do endurance and um, you know resistance training at the same time, it seems to affect strength more than it does hypertrophy. So if your goal is simply, and this is why, to be fair, you, you've got a lot of kind of CrossFit athletes and, and, and people that do that style of training, they're, they're, they're still in great shape because the endurance doesn't tend to really interfere too much with the actual hypertrophy. But if your goal is strength, maybe you're a power lifter or a weightlifter or something like that, um, you might be better off with a lower intensity because there is um, something called, like you said, an interference effect. Um, and it seems to affect um, lower body in particular. So if you were to do, so th this recent study, it was looking at cycling, um, HIIT training and running HIIT training uh, and, and then resistance training. And it seemed to affect lower body strength. So yeah. if you were to do, say, sprints and then you were to do maybe squats a day or two later, you might find that your lower body strength is affected. And like you said, you, you had an example there where you were kind of doing rowing. I imagine it's the same thing. You know, you're, you're kind of obviously using your back quite a bit there. So your strength is going to be affected, but it doesn't appear at least in within the limitations of the study, it doesn't appear to affect hypertrophy. And, and you know, that might be what most people want anyway. So, yeah, the vast majority of people listening will, will, will have that. And I certainly know that I steered away from high intensity stuff or kind of more functional stuff in the past because it affected my recovery to go into the gym and match my logbook and beat my logbook when my calories were going down. Whereas I suppose when you're on more food, I think doing, and again, this is an argument for another day and discussion for another day, doing cardio when you've got more calories in, not necessarily just using cardio to create a deficit, but using cardio as a, a tool to get better at it can be quite a, an interesting one. So hit versus list tends to fall into the fat loss debate, Harry, is I'm sure many of your clients are like, oh, well, should I be doing hit or less? And you're saying, well, it depends is always what your yeah. what your goal is and what your time schedule is like rather than than anything else is it there any down to enjoyment as well you know yeah. like you said like you know list is i mean some people to be fair some people love it because you know i might suggest to them like are there any sort of menial tasks that you can do like so for example if you you know you're normally sitting on the sofa scrolling through instagram can you do that you know doing an incline walk on a treadmill or or cycling on a bike because then you're you're doing something you would have normally done anyway but you're adding a little extra to it you know a little extra um, movement um but if that absolutely bores you to tears then you know hit is it's short sharp again to use that kind of lamppost thing earlier it's it's a little bit easier you know when, when you're when you're doing these amraps emoms whatever you want it's it's very short and sharp there's not much to you know to get to the next stage whereas yeah. like you've probably seen that that meme going around of the uh, the treadmill it's like oh 60 minutes left that's 15 minutes four times you know or like <laughs> six 10 minutes six times or whatever and that's kind of what it is it's like a drag for some people but if you can somehow fill that time with something that you would be doing anyway like i said if you just on your phone responding to just basic emails or scrolling through instagram or watching a you know, a Netflix or YouTube or something like that. It's something that I've done quite a lot in my, um, you know, back in my competing days and stuff because it's just what I preferred. But yeah, I also accept the fact that it's a bit boring for some people. Very similar to me, Harry. When I've done my hardest diets, I've just I've gone out for steps or I've been on an incline treadmill and I've just answered emails, I've answered Instagram DMs, I've written content, I've phoned people, and you can do that. Whereas if you're doing a 
a hit session or like you say, one of these EMOMs or Metcons, you've got to really, you're going balls to the wall for, for 10, 15, 20 minutes at most and you're done and it's over and the calorie burn's good. But again, it comes down to, to a lot of different factors. W- one question around it that I've got from a science perspective, is there anything to do with afterburn? Because that's a, a kind of a famous phrase. Is that something that you've looked into when it comes to hit? Yeah, so it's called um, EPOC, E-P-O-C. And I can't remember what that stands for. Um, but it's, it's, I think it's something like for HIIT training, it's about 7%. And for LIST, it's about 3%. Um, that's off the top of my head. I'd have to go back and have a look at it. But it's called um, EPOC. And yeah, it's, it's, it's trivial, really. Yep. Um, and also, you've got to consider that you know, you're, you're going to be burning slightly less calories doing HIIT. So it's 7% of fewer calories. Yeah three percent of do you know what i mean so it, it sort of it it becomes a little bit of a wash really um the only other thing about hit as well which is we should probably touch on is is you know hit is probably potentially going to be slightly more applicable in terms of work capacity and work rate to resistance training yeah um it, it does become its problem in a way because it is effectively almost as as tough as a resistance training session so you do have that like i said that recovery and interference that you need to factor in but you know if you're doing like 60 seconds of hard graft when you think of a heavy set of squats that could be 60 seconds of hard graft do you know what yeah. i mean so you've got it it is all a bit of a balance really like anything and i sort of hate to use that word but um it, it is really so i think sometimes you've got to also think what what is your ultimate goal like do you want to get kind of cardiovascularly fit as well and is your fitness affecting your training you know if you yes. if you could do more squats but you can't because you're blowing then it might be worth incorporating something like here where that is going to have a little bit more of a carryover into your training yeah that's a great point the transfer effect of being good at cardio rather than just good at walking on a treadmill might benefit you in those higher rep 12 15 20 rep sets where you might build more muscle in the long term as well. So yeah, that's just another another layer to the question that we've answered. So we've used science during this episode from an applicable perspective with Harry in terms of his famous whiteboard chats. He's brought us five questions which we've gone in depth on. I hope you've all enjoyed it. Last question for you, Harry, is where is the best place for people to connect with you? So best place is definitely Instagram. Um, you know, just ask me any questions on there. I try to get back to them, you know as soon as possible really and then obviously website a taste of fitness.co.uk and um, what's your handle on insta sorry harry uh it's just harry ranson all one word there's only one of me sh- apparently so <laughs> <laughs> there's only one harry ranson that'll be in the show notes below if you're with us at this point folks and you've enjoyed the episode take a screenshot pop it in your instagram story tag me at, at call.cambro tag harry let us have your feedback and i cannot wait to speak to you all again very very 